This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. As always, you can hear new episodes every Thursday. And if you'd like to, you can also leave us a rating and a review. This week, we're bringing you the story of Old Sarum in Wiltshire in southwest England. And as sites go, it's certainly old, dating back as far as the Iron Age, with later occupation by the Romans, Saxons and Normans, plus priests, members of parliament and even royalty. Joining us now to peel back the layers of history at this eclectic site are senior properties historian Dr Stephen Brindle. Uh, Hello. And historian and author of the English Heritage Guidebook to Old Sarum, John McNeil. Uh, Hello, Charles. John, where is Old Sarum and why is it significant? Well, Old Sarum is less than two miles north of the centre of Salisbury, which effectively is its successor. And as a site, what we think of as Old Sarum is an, uh, an Iron Age hill fort with a medieval castle at its centre. But topographically, it's actually quite high. It has spectacular views and it overlooks the valleys of the Bourne and the River Avon just above the point at which those rivers come together. A great landmark then. Indeed, yes, yes. And a great sort of navigation mark as well. So you can see it, uh, obviously, from the valleys, but you also see it from a series of other high points in that uh, in that area. Its situation really is sort of strategic in that sense. It, it's, it has high visibility and it seems to be connected to a range of prehistoric, basically Iron Age sites at a point where a series of rivers are coming together eventually to form the Wiltshire Raven. And its historical significance spans the centuries, spans millennia. Yes, I mean, we think it was created around about 400 BC, and it's certainly in, in use, if not continuous occupation from that point, really right the way through to 15, the, the early 16th century, the, the Tudor period. And it's abandoned eventually around about sort of 1514, 1515, which is when permission is given for what remains of, uh, of useful material, basically stone and timber on the site to be removed from the site. And from that point on, it's an abandoned site. Can you describe how it appears? My sense, having looked at some aerial photos, is it almost looks a bit like an eye, what we're left with. Yes, it has a, a rampart. It's basically oval with an entrance originally at just one end on the east side of the eye, as it were. Subsequently, there's another entrance at the far end, which is created as well. And in the centre of it, then you have a big ditch, which is used to throw up earth to create a sort of artificial mound there. And that's the Norman Castle site. And as I say, sort of more or less at the centre of it. And it has these little ridges within it. So from the point of view of the eye, it looks almost like a clock face, right, with sort of ridges which, which uh, move out like an hour or a minute hand from the, from the centre. Stephen, a good description by John there? Yes, absolutely, Charles. The road rises quite steeply out of Salisbury to the suburbs, and you're not particularly aware of Old Serum from the road from the south, but coming from the north from the Stonehenge and Amesbury direction, it looms above the landscape because this is one end of a, of a ridge called Bishop's Down. 
and the hilltop was sculpted, was terraced by the Iron Age builders. And so when you approach it from the north, it appears very dramatically as a feature in the landscape, and you can tell that it's, uh, it's artificial, that it's a hill fort. But once you're in the site, there's quite a sort of sharp turn to the left from the Salisbury Road, and the road leads quite steeply up into it. And the most dramatic features, of course, are the, the outer banks and ditches, which are really on a huge scale, as big as, as those at Maiden Castle in Dorset, for example. And it's a very large area. I mean, I think it's probably about a mile around the circumference of it. And it sort of shelves gently upwards towards the middle. But in the middle, as John says, there is a further enclosure, and that is the Norman Castle, where a ditch was dug on a comparably large scale in order to make a single great mound, not a very sort of tall pyramidal mound, but the ground level in the middle was raised to create the Norman Castle. And so there were further dramatic earthworks in the middle. But the key point really is that the inner bailey in the middle is Norman and is planted within the Iron Age hill fort. And what you see now is really seems like a landscape site because it's, it's green, it's grass. The, the seam at first, we know, standing buildings. But when you get into the castle, there are the remains of stone buildings, which are quite substantial. And eventually, you realise that there's the footings, there's the plan of a Norman cathedral laid out, though that's best seen from the air, actually. Yes, indeed. And I think the thing that's quite striking uh, when you're looking at aerial photographs is almost how green and sort of empty the site looks but I think in its heyday it would have been quite jam-packed with other buildings they've just all been taken away yes indeed Charles there were monumental buildings built by the Normans a great castle in the middle a cathedral small as Norman cathedrals went but still a very large building and we now know thanks to recent remote survey that there were a great many more stone buildings the outer bailey was divided, as John has said, by radial divisions into a number of sectors. And the most important of these was something approaching a quarter of the outer bailey was really a precinct for the cathedral and the bishop's palace. But we know there were other divisions too, and that there were buildings of stone and probably of timber. And there was rather a complex topography for buildings in the outer bailey. But all trace of them has gone now above ground. And we're just beginning to understand them from excavation and more from recent remote survey. Yes, well, perhaps we'll talk about um, further excavations towards the end of the episode. But um, if we wind back the clock really, really far, why did Iron Age people build a fort in this particular location, John? Well, uh, not an easy question to answer because we know relatively little really about British Iron Age culture. But there are a whole series of Iron Age fortifications which are in that area. And Stephen's already alluded to a major prehistoric site up to the north, which is Stonehenge. So it's a known landscape. It's a known area. And if you think back to the sort of period in which this is being built, which is round about 500, 400 BC, then the appearance of the valleys would be very different indeed to the appearance today. So these would be very, very heavily wooded. There'd be relatively little in the way of occupation, but there would be trackways which run through those valleys. We know of at least two trackways, which are of a roughly that date and probably considerably earlier, which come together just to the south of, of Old Serum and enable you actually to cross the rivers. So the rivers themselves, the valleys, 
really are crucial to understanding how it is or why you might want to actually build above those valleys. So on the one hand, it gives you a protective area, an area to which you can retreat if necessary. And above all, if you are going to retreat, you actually want to retreat with your livestock. You don't just want to actually bring the people together for the safety of the people. You actually want to bring these sort of herds of, uh, of sheep, cattle and livestock actually into a large enclosure. So you want a very large enclosure as such and a high point as well. So for reasons of protection, this seems to be behind the idea of building a large enclosure at that sort of point. But they're sort of multi-purpose, really, are uh, Iron Age hill forts. Uh, uh, Various things actually happen within them, not least markets. So it's now becoming increasingly clear that these are market centres. Now, this is not like a weekly market, necessarily, but this is actually a sort of centre where at certain times of year, then markets can actually be set up. So they're social centres as well. They're not necessarily permanent what we would think of as being permanent centres of occupation, sort of mini towns as such, but they can become that. And it's on a massive scale as well. I mean, Stephen's already alluded to or compared it uh, in terms of the steepness of its banks and so on to Maiden Castle, which is the largest of all the Iron Age hill forts in uh, in England. And Old Sarum is probably about the second largest, not absolutely certain is that, uh, is that, but it is on a very, very large scale. It's about 29 acres altogether internally. And with that sort of space comes flexibility. You can do a lot of things in a place like that. Though, of course, it was then different to how it is now when it's first built. So there wasn't a a castle in the centre. It's almost sort of like a shallow dome, which is to say that naturally the ground level actually rises internally. And that shape was enhanced by the digging of the ramparts. So once you dig ramparts, once you dig a a large ditch, of course, you throw up a lot of earth, soil, chalk, and some of that chalk is used to actually level out the ground within the enclosure and appears to have been done as part of the sort of primary establishment of the site around about 400 BC. Mm, Yes, I was just about to ask uh, whereabouts we are on the timeline, but you've sort of described where the Iron Age is. where does the Iron Age sort of begin and end, actually? Well, it depends whereabouts you are in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in Europe, really. The Iron Age just takes its name from the capacity to be able to smelt iron ore and to make use of it as such. So you actually need to have furnaces or kilns which can reach a, a very, very high temperature, a temperature of over 1,000 degrees centigrade. And that sort of technology is developed in the eastern Mediterranean by about 1200 BC. It doesn't really arrive in northwestern Europe until maybe 800 BC, 7800 BC. So we're sort of in the middle of the Iron Age in 400 BC in Britain. And for the original fort, Stephen, the evidence is very strong. You can really see that this was Iron Age first before all the other civilizations sort of made their mark. Uh, Would I be right there? Yes, indeed, Charles. It's one of a number of uh, fortified Iron Age sites overlooking the valley. There's Figsbury Ring and Clearbury Ring, though I think Old Serum is on a larger scale than those. The outer banks, which are the most um, eroded element of it now, and then there's a ditch, and within the ditches, the land rises sharply because it's been sort of sculpted in that way, and then there are 
inner banks, which actually enclose the bailey, all on a huge scale. There's some evidence there was original entrance facing north, but this seems to have been blocked at a, at a very early date, possibly even before Roman times. There is now a west entrance, but that is thought to be altogether later, and I think probably medieval, but it may be that for much of the history there was only one entrance here, which is the, the present one on the east side, and that's had some what's called a horn work, that is like this little outer earthwork, so that no frontal assault could be made on the original entrance gate. You could only approach it from the side. So the Iron Age evidence we have is essentially the earthworks themselves, although the inner banks may have been raised in a later period, with the evidence for, for entrances uh, and really essentially for one principal entrance on the east side. And of course, the fact that there was only, for much of its history, apparently only one entrance underlines the likely defensive purpose of it. John Stevens already has alluded to the size and the circumference. Uh, I think he said about a, a mile around if you're taking a, a walk. In, but uh, if you're walking from uh, one side to the other, inside it. How long would that walk take, would you say? Well, now it would take you longer than it would have done in the Iron Age because you've got a big mound in the middle of it. So you can't actually walk directly across the diameter of the interior. But it would take you, it would probably take you about sort of 10 minutes. It takes you about 20 minutes to walk all the way around the ramparts on the top. And apart from these earthworks, is there any other evidence of Iron Age settlers within the interior or even outside, Stephen? Well, there's plenty of evidence of Iron Age settlement in the wider landscape, Charles. There are other Iron Age hill forts. Landscape surveys have been carried out of the area, really from Old Serum stretching northwards to Stonehenge, which have begun to match the use of the landscape and the way in which landscape was divided up as settled cultivation spread across it in the late Iron Age. And so this area of Wiltshire, we probably understand more about the, the prehistoric landscape, including the uh, late Iron Age landscape, than we do in any other part of Britain. But as regards Old Serum itself, really the, the evidence is tantalisingly slender, because although there have been excavations inside it, what they've made clear is that the area inside was very heavily disrupted by later phases, Roman and Saxon and medieval, and that the ground level actually changed in several areas inside it and went up. And I think the other thing you have to remember is that the Iron Age structures within it would almost certainly all have been of timber and would only have left a very light impression in the ground. If one could find the exact, one might well find post holes, but clear evidence of structures inside it has so far been eluded. I think that's right, isn't it, John? The only Iron Age artefact which has survived, which has come through rather, is a bronze belt link, which is now in the Salisbury Museum, which is dated to the first century BC. So it's a pre-Roman bronze belt link, but there probably is a lot more or was a lot more that was missed in the early 20th century excavations there because they simply weren't conscious of fragmentary Iron Age material which may have come out of rubbish pits. So let's move on to uh, the Romans and the Saxons. What do we know about Old Serum's use by the Romans, John? Well, we have a problem 
with that in the sense that the uh, after the Norman conquest, after 1066, a large mound was thrown up at the centre of the site, which has buried the centre of the Roman site. So what little we know about the middle of that site has really come out of the investigation of a well inside the Norman castle. And that established what the original Roman floor level, ground level, of the centre of the site was, and it, it managed to identify the corner of a building and a little bit of a pavement. So you have to go down just over five metres. It's about 17 feet from the level of the bailey to get down to the Roman, the centre of the Roman level at Old Serum. And it clearly was a sort of ritual centre there to have this rather grand masonry building with a rather smart pavement in it, subsequently interpreted, in fact, as a temple, but there's no really good evidence for, for what the function of this building was. But there's a lot more evidence for what's happening outside the ramparts. And we know of two areas which were very, very densely occupied during the Roman period. One is about four, 500 metres to the southeast of the site, and the other is to the south and is a roadside settlement. It's like, like a ribbon of occupied areas, plots and houses that run down past the local village called Stratford Subcastle -Sub and down to a river crossing there. And it was integrated into the Roman road system. So there are three roads which are coming from respectively the southeast, east and northeast, which converge by the main entrance into the Iron Age enclosure, what Stephen's already described as the hornwork there. And there is one road which is running west. And we know from what's called the Antonine Itinerary, this is a Roman document, that Old Serum was then called Sorvio Dunum. So we have no idea what the Iron Age people called Old Serum, but we do know that the Romans called this site Sorvio Dunum. And it was on a road which took you from Winchester or from London via Silchester, that is sort of basically London via Reading, down eventually to, uh, to Exeter. So it becomes quite an important, quite significant centre. And it's likely to have been created within about a decade of the Roman conquest of Britain in 43 AD. And it's in use right the way through, really, to the withdrawal of... Roman administration from uh, from Britain. So just in terms of what you're saying there, John, about the positioning of these Roman aspects on the site, have they built within the site and outside the site? Yes, as Stephen said, then there's quite a lot of evidence which has come from sort of remote sensing of occupation around most of the visible surface now of the site, though we know very little about the nature of those buildings. Uh, most, many of them are masonry buildings. And as a working hypothesis, it seems much more likely that, that Old Serum was used initially as an army or military centre by the Romans and then became an administrative centre so that although you actually have these often quite large buildings outside, there are a series of large rectangular structures, which are probably barracks. It's probably a military centre. And with Roman military centres, you usually have a sort of civilian area called the vicus, 
which is often at some remove from the main Roman military centre. And this may explain these these sort of sub these uh, areas of occupation, which are at some remove. You know, it's not as if they are like modern suburbs which come right up to the ramparts. There actually is a gap between what is the, the main fortified enclosure and a suburb which is down to the southeast, and then this sort of roadside development, which is down towards the south of it and runs down to the, to the river. But there's probably more population in the Roman period outside the actual ramparts than there is inside the ramparts. Curious. Uh, what do you think the reason for that is? Well, I, th- I think that life is probably more pleasant outside the ramparts than it is inside the ramparts. You're quite high when you get up to Old Serum, and there are subsequent complaints, complaints in the Middle Ages, actually, that it's, it's windy, it's difficult to get water up actually into the uh, main area itself, and it's noisy because of the wind which is up there. But again, uh, if, if it is primarily a military site under the Romans, then you don't necessarily want to live with or in the actual military enclosure. What do we know about the site after the Romans left Britain in the 5th century? Very little. There's a a famous entry, a very early entry into the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for the year 552, which uh, tells us of a battle which is fought at uh, Sarubriga, as it's then called, in which a Saxon army defeats a British army there. That's the only sort of documentary mention of Salisbury. There is some material which has uh, has been discovered, which is uncertainly dated, but probably is sort of 6th or 7th century. There's a little sort of bone whistle, for example. But they're very difficult to date, those types of things. But it certainly comes back into use in the 10th and 11th centuries. So there's quite a lot happening there over the 10th century. And in the early 11th century, then we know a mint is set up in Old Serum as of 1003, probably as a result of of a sack or damage that's actually done to Wilton, which is the settlement which is about three, four miles southwest of Old Serum, and which in fact was the county town. So Wiltshire, you know, the county town of Wiltshire is Wilton, not Old Serum. That changes after the conquest. And currently it's Trowbridge, which is in West Wiltshire, isn't it? Indeed. Um, indeed so, yeah. yes, Wilton, the sort of lost county town of, of Wiltshire indeed. in South West yes. Wiltshire. Yes, um, like Somerton for Somerset. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So under the Normans, after 1066, what happens to old Serum then, Stephen? Well, what happened, Charles, is that essentially William the Conqueror recognised the defensive potential of the place and also its good communications, those roads which converged outside the East Gate, and he made it first probably a military base and the centre of county administration and the seat of the sheriff of Wiltshire in preference to Wilton. And this happened very soon after the conquest, probably about 1069 or 70. And so Old Serum was one of the first waves of Norman Shire castles built after the conquest And it was in this period, uh, just in a few years after the conquest, that a great new mot was created, almost certainly with local forced labour, inside the the hill fort, 
to throw up a great new mound, not a very not a very high mound, a sort of a broad area buried to a, a depth of maybe 20 feet. John's mentioned that there's 17 feet difference between the inner bailey of the castle and the Roman ground level below it. So really, rather than being a high mound, it was a case of the ground level being raised in this circular area in the middle of the hill fort with huge ditches created and the underfill thrown up. And initially there would have been timber palisades and timber buildings on this new earthwork at the centre of the Outer Bailey, because of course the Outer Bailey, with a mile uh, circumference of its defences, would have been far too large for any viable Norman garrison. But the Conqueror would have recognised the defensive potential of the place, but for it to be a seriously defensible castle, he needed somewhere smaller and more compact with a defensible perimeter. And so an earthen timber castle was created by about 1070 at the heart of the Iron Age hill fort. And that puts Old Serum really in one of the earliest of the shire castles, the places where castles were planted to be the seat of a sheriff, the representative of the authority of the crown within the county, the man who was going to collect the crown's dues and revenues in that county, and also be responsible for for its defence and its administration. What then happened not long after is that Serum also became the seat of local bishop. Now, there had been, until the early 10th century, Wiltshire was part of the truly vast diocese of Winchester, and a new diocese was formed in the early 10th century based at Ramsbury, and that would have served Wiltshire and Berkshire. But later that was merged with the See of Sherborne in Dorset, and the cathedral was moved from Ramsbury to Sherborne. Well, after the Norman Conquest, the See of Sherborne was moved to Old Sarum, and that was almost certainly done by the, the conqueror leaning on the church, because this wasn't really the sort of place which a churchman would likely have picked out as a suitable place for an Episcopal see, uh, a suitable seat for a cathedral. It seems quite likely that there was the influence of the crown here. But nevertheless, what you do find in a great many English county towns is that there was a shire castle founded under the early Norman kings, and there is also a cathedral and there are many towns in which the Normans took steps to bring these things together. I mean, Norwich would be a prominent example, a place with a great royal castle and a great cathedral. And so Serum was intended by the Conqueror and by his administrators to be a new seat of county administration in this ancient, this ancient defensible site with a royal castle and with a cathedral. At that date, uh, the bishop was a cleric called Herman, and he began the cathedral there, but it was really mostly built by his successor, Osmond, uh, who was the uh, new bishop of Serum from about 1078 to 1099. And so a masonry cathedral began to be built quite shortly after the, um, soon after 1075, which is uh, when the Episcopal See was moved here. This first cathedral then, because there's going to be another one. Stephen, how big was it at this masonry cathedral? Well, Herman's Cathedral would be about the smallest of any of the post-conquest cathedrals in England. It would have been just about 185 feet or 56 metres long. And that, I think, is partly because 
a precinct, although Old Serum might seem like a big enclosure when you stand within it today, there would have been other functions to have been accommodated there and an area of the hill fort, a segment of probably a little less than a quarter of it, was designated as being the cathedral precinct. And in common with any other cathedral towns, a cathedral needed quite a large precinct of a space around it to house residential buildings, whether they were monastic or for secular clergy. There were secular clergy in this case. There was um, dean and canons. And so there was a limited precinct and there was a limited amount of space which could be made available for it. But at any rate, it was quite compact. It was like a small version of a church which the conqueror himself had founded, La Trinité in Caen, which is where William's first wife, Matilda, was buried and um, probably modelled on that. There was a seven-bay nave, there was a chancel with quite a long chancel with an apse flanked by aisles, and then there were short transepts with further apses. So it was closely based on a Norman model, and it had that in common with some of the other early Norman cathedrals in England, but it was just very much smaller than most of them. Simple 11th century architecture with cross-shaped piers, and it was would have been designed to be run up quite quickly, although it was completed by Herman's successor, Osmond. Height-wise, what, what sort of heights do you think it would have reached? Oh, goodness, Charles. Well, we don't really know, because we all we have is the plan information. The entire building was removed, uh, and indeed the building was removed so thoroughly that its plan had to be reconstructed from the filled-in foundation trenches. And if one was guesstimates based on comparable Norman buildings, might suggest that it might have been 50 or 60 feet to to the nave ceiling, which would probably have been of flat and panelled in timber. But that's really just a guess. Stephen, you've sort of given us an idea of the kind of people who lived at Old Serum um, in this particular Norman period. John, could you sort of expand on that at all, on who lived here, what happened here during this period? Well, uh, there are really two basic communities, one of them within the castle. This is the sheriff's household, but also there's an administrative cadre that, that is based in the castle. And there will be a, a garrison that is maintaining the castle itself, the castle being a great tower within that sort of larger area. And outside that, as Stephen has said, there is roughly speaking a quarter of the remaining area, which is given over to the cathedral and its staff. And there's a bishop there. We know that there is a bishop's palace that's certainly in existence by in the 12th century, not necessarily in the, in the 11th century, but there will be some sort of structure there for the bishop and a community which is set up to serve the cathedral. And these are canons, that is to say they're priests rather than monks, and they serve the cathedral from their residences. What eventually emerges, I mean, or rather what gradually emerges, is a system whereby each one of these canons has a separate income and a parish for which they're actually responsible these are known as prebends. So each one of these canons is a prebendary. So he actually has two roles to play. One which is entirely external to Old Serum, which is a parish which provides him with an income, with a living. And the other are his duties actually in the choir at the cathedral itself. 
but they don't necessarily live in as a community. So they're not necessarily, in fact, living within that quarter of the precinct. Some of them are, but many of them aren't. And one of them, a man called Godwin, who is the precentor, actually wrote a, term, a tract, wrote a text which describes the life of a canon in which he maintains that some of the canons live inside the ramparts and some of them live outside the ramparts, and that this is a reasonable way of, uh, of living. It's a sort of defence of their way of life at, uh, at Old Serum, and he feels that it is appropriate for them to actually have private property, property which they hold themselves, in addition to any property which they actually hold communally. And that sort of situation develops over the course of the 12th century. So that under Osmond, who is the bishop who's largely responsible really for the creation of the, of the cathedral, as Stephen said, it's begun when a man called Herman is bishop, but Herman dies within three years of the official move of the site of the cathedral to Old Serum from Sherburn. That takes place in 1075, and Herman dies in 1078, which is when Osmond takes over. But Osmond had been a sort of optimate, he'd been a, a very close advisor to William the Conqueror. In fact, he'd been William's chancellor from 1070 all the way through to 1078. So he almost certainly had a role to play in the decision to move to Old Serum. And he plays a role in the setting up of a constitution for the cathedral, in which they have this arrangement in which some of the canons have livings outside the, the actual cathedral itself. So that by the time that Osmond dies, one source tells us that there are 39 canons altogether. Eventually, the number of canons rise to just over 50. But it's obviously really quite substantial. And one thing to bear in mind in terms of why it is that they move here to Old Serum is that the bishop, in fact, holds all the land around Old Serum. So bishops have estates which are used to support them and support their office, their, their administration uh, here. And there's an, there's an estate which is centred on Old Serum, which extends for about nine square miles in total, which is held by the bishop. It also includes what subsequently becomes the, the city of Salisbury, in fact, and is a, a major reason why it is that they move to Old Serum, because it's not a terribly wealthy bishopric as such. And so actually to sort of make use of the Episcopal Estates make, makes a lot of sense for the, uh, for the site itself. So in addition to those, you actually have a, like a sort of household staff. And under Osmond, this is described by a later chronicler as a household of scholars and, and clerks, of learned people. And there's a major scriptorium which is set up here. So there are scribes who are literate and are capable of copying documents, creating charters, copying manuscripts, copying religious texts, and, and so on. And they are being used by the crown. They're being used by the king and by, therefore, the sheriff and the castle, as well as the actual uh, sort of cathedral. And we know that from a document known as the Exxon Doomsday, which is a sort of fair copy, effectively, of the Doomsday Survey as it covers the southwestern counties of, of England. And that was compiled here at Old Serum. And the fair copy was actually made at, uh, at Old Serum. So it seems to be a reporting centre, administrative reporting centre. And this relationship between the administration, the sheriff's administration, the castle, royal castle, and the cathedral uh, here is obviously very close at this period. It breaks down later, 
but it is very close in the uh, late 11th and, and early 12th centuries. Outside that, we know much less about who is resident here, though I suspect that the story is very similar to the story that you have during the Roman period that within the ramparts you have an administrative centre with a cathedral and a castle and all the people that are concerned with that. But the civilian population, by and large, is actually living outside the ramparts here within this roadside. We certainly know that on the roadside to the south of it, there's a lot that's happening in the late 11th and the early 12th century. And there's already a parish church, which is on the edge of what is the later city of Salisbury which is in existence by about 1100, probably earlier than that. So there's always a, a substantial population, probably significantly in excess of the population inside the ramparts, outside the ramparts, really, by 1100, certainly, and probably earlier than that. There's this thing called the Rite of Serum, which I think is something to do with these priests or canons in residence on, on sites during this period. What's that? Yes, this actually sort of jumps forward slightly in the sense that the Rite of Serum was really compiled in anticipation of the move out of Old Serum into Salisbury when the cathedral is moved. But by its nature, it's a record of the customs of the old site. So it tells us a lot about the use of the old site. And it's an extraordinarily detailed document which on the one hand, describes an administration. So what do you need to run a cathedral? Who are your principal officers there? And so they have a dean who is the head of the community. The bishop is responsible for the diocese. So his responsibilities stretch way beyond Old Serum, whereas the dean's responsibilities are simply for the cathedral church and divine service within the cathedral church. And there are three other officers uh, who are here. There's what is known as the treasurer, which isn't really a financial position. The treasurer really is responsible for the treasurer of the church, whatever that may be. So it's the equipment which is used during the celebration of a mass, for example, and it's general equipment uh, there. There's what's called the chancellor, and he is responsible for uh, what you think of probably as the church's mission, a sort of education he's responsible for, and above all, the actual liturgy uh, here. So the various different offices and services which are held there on a day-by-day -day basis throughout the liturgical year in the cathedral. And then you have a sort of sacristan figure uh, who's really sort of responsible for the material fabric of the building, for its maintenance and for its supply as well. So, you know, for the actual provisions that, that are necessary for the continuation of life in the cathedral, and then your various different canons. So that's one part of the Rite of Serum. The other part of the Rite of Serum actually is this very detailed series of prescriptions for exactly what should be done during what office at what time of year, which changes day by day uh, throughout the year itself as to what psalms should be sung, what antiphons, for the ceremonial life of the cathedral. And the fact it's actually created for Old Serum is very clear whenever you try to reenact any of those services in the new cathedral. 
And relatively recently, there was a reenactment of the liturgy for the octave of Easter. So this is the Sunday after Easter Sunday. And towards the end of the service, then the choir processes out of the ritual choir area. It goes down the south aisle of the cathedral. It crosses at the west end of the nave into the nave, and it returns up the central vessel into the choir itself. And because of the number of bays that you actually have at the old cathedral, the pacing is exactly right for the psalm that's being sung. Whereas at the old cathedral, they almost have to race because it's um, the new cathedral, rather, they almost have to race because it's a much bigger building for this. And it's just a curiosity, you know, that this is the case. And it sort of, I suppose, illustrates a basic point that liturgy is immutable, you know, actually, once they have a specific liturgy, they maintain it really through the rest of the Middle Ages, regardless of the building in which they're celebrating it. Stephen, we've talked about the rite of Sarum. There's also this thing called the Oath of Sarum. I think it involves King William I, William the Conqueror. I think he came in 1086 to Old Sarum. Can you tell us any more about that? Yes, Charles. On Lammas Day, that is the 1st of August, 1086, King William came here and all of the landholding men of any account throughout England bowed down to him and became his men and swore oaths of fealty, we are told. And so that would have been a huge gathering. If it was all the tenants in chief, well, it would have been several hundred people. And of course, in 1086, the Doomsday Survey, which actually listed, enumerated, King's tenants-in-chief and all of their sub-tenants had just been carried out. And as John said, a part of the administration of that had probably been, for Southwest England, had probably been carried out in Old Serum, where there was a great major centre of administration. And there's the document known as the Exxon Doomsday, which is the copy of that. So it's striking that Serum was chosen as the setting for this, rather than one of the places like uh, Winchester or Westminster or Gloucester, which were like the traditional places where King held a great court. And it may be that it's because the scale of the Outer Bailey at Serum provided a sufficient sufficient space for a really large act of outdoor political theatre and for several hundred people to come and do homage to the king. They would place their hands between his and swore to be his liege men, having been acknowledged in the Doomsday Survey as tenants-in-chief, as people held land directly from him. So it was towards the end of William's reign, and it's like a culmination of his reign, really, the point where he is acknowledged as the overlord of all England and where Norman rule, normal control of land, of land ownership, has been defined by the Doomsday Survey. A landmark event in a major landmark. I can, yeah, I can see the drama of it. <laughs> Who's the next big figure to make his mark on the site, John? Uh, Roger. Roger was a, becomes bishop. He's elected bishop in 1102, and he dies in a very unfortunate circumstances in 1139. So it's quite a long period that he's, uh, he's bishop. And he was noticed by Henry I, just outside Caen, actually. And he's from the sort of Caen, Avranche area of Normandy, from Western Normandy, and Henry was most impressed by the speed at which Roger could say Mass. 
and so brought him over to England. And he becomes a member of the royal administration. And as part of that, he's also made Bishop of, of Salisbury. Uh, he takes that role very seriously. He's a great builder. He develops his the Episcopal estates. So they have manners and interests at Malmesbury, Devizes, Sherburne, and Ulcerum itself. So within Dorset and Wiltshire, he builds castles there. He builds a magnificent house inside the castle area of Old Serum, which we call the courtyard house, and he extends the cathedral. He probably starts his extension of the cathedral in a sumptuous, richly sculpted type of a, a style in the 1120s, and it remains unfinished at his death. Uh, his death is a sort of contrived event, effectively, under Henry I's successor, King Stephen, in that Roger is arrested, he's charged with corruption. His nephews and his son, they're all held under arrest, probably in rather miserable conditions, in fact, unusually miserable conditions. And the shock of that and the time he spends in prison doesn't do his health any good at all. And so between the summer and the winter of 1139, his health really declines very, very sub substantially. And he dies at Old Sarum in December of uh, 1139. The new cathedral by then had reached the transept area. So this rather wonderful, very, very extensive East End, which was an extension of the old cathedral. So it increases its length from 185 feet to about 300 feet, had reached the, the nave. And a very awkward junction then has to be created after his death because work simply closes down at that point. They do little more than roof the cathedral and that's, that's it. That's the end of it. Henry II, Stephen. Can you describe what happened to Old Serum during his reign and whereabouts we are, which century we're in for this period? King Henry II was a great builder, Charles, and a man who built on the legacy left him by his revered grandfather, Henry III. And he spent a lot of money at the Shire castles, enhancing them as residences and places of administration. And he spent over £300 on the castle at Serum, which was you have a lot of money there between 1171 and 89. Gatehouse was rebuilt, the inner bailey walls were rebuilt, a treasury was built adjoining the Norman keep within the castle. But Henry probably didn't reside there himself, particularly because he had a major hunting palace at Clarendon, that is on the, the east side of Salisbury, not very far away. But Serum acquired a very different role after the Great Rebellion in 1172, when three of Henry's sons, Henry the Young King, Richard and Geoffrey, rebelled against him, and they were aided and abetted by their mother, Henry's famous glamorous wife, Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. And after that, King Henry felt that Eleanor simply couldn't be trusted. And so for the rest of his reign, from about 1172, three to 1189, she was held really under form of house arrest here at Serum and at Winchester. And it's likely that some of the works of the castle, notably replacing the uh, timber ramparts around the Bailey stone, were to do with this, uh, fitting the place as this rather involuntary residence for Queen Eleanor. And large sums were spent by the Sheriff of Wiltshire on the Queen, on maintaining her household there, and fine clothes were sent from Westminster 
just very occasionally she was um, let out of prison at Sarah Winchester to, to attend a Christmas court or something with her family. But really she was kept there until 1189. The castle was then maintained through the next reigns of Richard and John. And the other thing which was going on in the reign of Henry II is that under Bishop Jocelyn, who succeeded poor old Roger of Sarah and Roger of Sherborne, the cathedral was completed. The original 11th century nave, as John said, was retained. But a new west front was added and a cloister was built between the bishop's palace and cathedral. So throughout the reign of Henry II, there's this sense that the crown and the diocese were still absolutely committed to Sarum as being the centre of royal administration and the seat of the cathedral. The other thing to mention, of course, there, Stephen, is that uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine is a separate episode that people can listen to. That's episode 151, which you starred in as well. What happened, though, during this tumultuous period of King John... John. Well, relations between the inhabitants of the cathedral quarter and of the castle went into really steep decline. It seems likely that there were problems that preceded that during the reign of Richard, because we know that the canons and indeed the dean, Richard Poor at that point, were already making inquiries uh, as to the possibility of actually moving out of Old Sarum altogether. Um, uh, and to an extent, uh, that is being driven, I think, by the fact that the population has largely left Old Sarum by then. Um, uh, so that, uh, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's a parish church on the uh, east side of uh, of what becomes Salisbury, which is in existence by uh, by 1100. Um, and I think most of the population is actually down in the River Valley, uh, really, by the end of the uh, the 12th century. Um, uh, and the cathedral site is becoming really quite uncomfortable. But matters come to a head during the reign of, uh, of King John, um, in that the castle, uh, uh, who control most of the outer bailey, so the cathedral just occupies as one quarter of that uh, of that site. Actually, close down the uh, they they uh, uh, on occasion prevent the cathedral clergy from using the principal entrance into uh, into Old Sarum. And there's an infamous episode in which during Rogation Tide, which is when all the clergy process right out of uh, Old Sarum down into the city of Salisbury, uh, what becomes the city of Salisbury, uh, and around the surrounding area, they process around the surrounding area or actually shut out. They can't get back in uh, uh, to it. Um, uh, and that is, uh, in a way, the sort of final straw matters accelerate uh, through 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, uh, towards the end of, uh, of John's reign, um, uh, when uh, uh, plans are put in hand for a move down to, uh, down to Salisbury, uh, and meetings are, uh, are held. And we have a couple of letters, uh, in fact, from one of the canons, uh, which is essentially an apology for not being able to attend a meeting, uh, but he agrees with some of the decisions that are taken at the meeting uh, to do with how it is that the canon should in future in the new site actually uh, 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 occupy houses, uh, fair houses of stone within the uh, the precinct. And that's in one of the essential precursors uh, behind the uh, behind the move. Um, uh, uh, so the the you know so so essentially um, relations are really very bad between the sheriff's castle, the garrison there, 
and the uh, and the cathedral and there's a great list of complaints which are eventually taken to the pope um uh, who approves this move in in 1218 some of these uh complaints are long-standing complaints uh, actually and that's to do with the unsuitability of the site particularly the difficulty in uh, in getting water uh, really up to the uh, up to the site there but they complain about the sort of n- the noisy soldiers in the garrison. They complain about the weather, the wind in particular. Uh, they feel really very exposed up there. There's a list of factors then, really. Yes, I can, I can imagine that. And King John sort of adding to that as well. Absolutely. There's, there's a lack of sympathy from the crown and probably instructions actually to make life uncomfortable uh, for the canons uh, mm. there, but then Salisbury is kind of on the up as well. So let's move to Salisbury. I suppose you could uh, you could sort of see it that way as well. And this decision to leave Old Sarum, I presume, for the religious aspects to, to relocate the cathedral, that must have had a negative effect on the whole site. Really, would that be right, John? Yeah, no, absolutely. It did have a negative effect on the uh, on the whole site. But they must have been planning for quite some time before they finally leave Old Sarum. They're not going to leave Old Sarum as a liturgical centre. In other words, they're not going to stop celebrating divine office, the mass at uh, Old Sarum, until they've got somewhere in Salisbury itself. And that takes several years. So although a foundation stone is laid at Salisbury in 1220, they're probably already building and providing for the site and digging foundation trenches and so on, really from about 1217, 1218, certainly from 1218. And eventually in 1226, then they remove the bodies of the three bishops who were buried at Old Sarum, one of whom, Osmond, who we've already heard of, is widely regarded as a saint by this period. And there's a great ceremony which is held, and they process the bodies down to the new site on Trinity Sunday of 1226. And once that is done, that is the definitive ending of divine service effectively at Old Sarum. And they can move it into the three eastern, the the area of three chapels at the east end of the new cathedral. And they can start actually to celebrate divine service down there at Salisbury at exactly that point. And we know that the demolition of the old cathedral then start. So the cathedral area becomes a sort of breaker's yard in which they're taking it down in order to reuse the materials from the old cathedral. And there's a rather wonderful royal record of permission, which is given to a man very closely involved with the construction of, of Salisbury Cathedral called Elias of Deerham. And he's given permission to choose suitable oaks from the King's Forest at Odiham in Hampshire in order to make the cranes for the presbytery at uh, Salisbury Cathedral. So this means that actually they're lining the walls at the upper part of uh, Salisbury Cathedral. And when you go up over the vaults at Salisbury Cathedral, you can actually see reused masonry from the old cathedral. So they must have breached the old cathedral really, probably in late 1226. And they're then starting to pull down the walls for the old cathedral in order to make use of its stone for areas that you don't really see, for the linings of walls, for vault pockets, and also actually for, for the making of lime, for the burning of lime, because it's a limestone they're mostly using at Old Serum. 
And so it's not difficult, actually, because they need huge quantities of lime and mortar for the new cathedral uh, to make use of that uh, of that stone in order to produce the lime mortar that's necessary. That's really interesting. It's nice that uh, there's sort of that continuation of the old Sarum story in the new Salisbury Cathedral. Absolutely. But as for Old Sarum, what was its population like after this relocation, Stephen? Probably very small, Charles. There would have been the sheriff, his administrative staff, and the garrison up at the castle. And they were maintained there as the uh, the Shire Castle for Wiltshire. And money was spent on it regularly throughout the 13th and 14th centuries. And quite a lot of money in the reign of Edward III, about £700 in his reign, the Crown remained committed to Old Serum being its Shire Castle. I think that may partly have been because the new city of Salisbury was laid out entirely on, on Episcopally controlled land, whereas they did actually control the hilltop site. And the outer suburbs took longer to decline, but uh, decline they did, and the population almost all moved to the Valley Bottom, so that by 1377, the poll tax returns there, there were 3,226 taxpayers in Salisbury and only 10 left in Serum. So what's quite hard to understand is why if Serum's, uh, even if the outer parts of the settlement have become so depopulated, is why it ever sent members to Parliament at all. But it did from 1360 on, and the extraordinary thing is that it went on doing so, even though when the traveller John Leland visited in 1540, he found not one house in Old Sersbury within or, or without it inhabited. So the population, the civil population, had really gone very largely by the late 14th century and completely gone by the 16th century. Yes, and this idea of a rotten borough, can you explain what that is? Is, is it basically... It's a parliamentary borough which sends MPs to Parliament despite having very little population or notoriously, in the case of Old Serum, no population at all. And it's what Old Serum really became famous or notorious for. Now, the English Parliament was defined in terms of its membership, in terms of where was represented. The, the idea that there were two MPs for each shire county and generally usually two MPs for, for each county borough, developed in the late Middle Ages. And the representation really was was fixed, was frozen from the 14th century onwards, and it didn't adapt to changing circumstances. Now, this only really started to matter for the most part in the 18th century when industrial towns really started growing. But uh, Serum was notorious as being the parliamentary borough which had effectively no population left at all. And so its MPs were nominated by the landowners, supposedly in election meetings at something called the Parliament Tree there. Land property ownership really spoke volumes in early modern England. Although elections were by open declaration, you had to attend the hustings and say which candidate you were voting for so everyone would know. And of course, if you were a tenant of landowner, and if you didn't vote the way your landowner wanted, you might well find yourself out in your ear. And so alongside the rotten boroughs, there were boroughs which were effectively controlled by their landowners, which were known as pocket boroughs. But in the case of Serum, there were no householders to be influenced one way or another. So, so far as we know, the, uh, the landowners simply nominated the MPs. I think that's right, isn't it, John? 
It is. There's a, a, a famous critique written by Edmund Burke, actually, in which he specifically cites Old Serum. And he says it was once a place of trade. Now it's only manufactories of MPs. <laughs> <laughs> well, thought. you did include William Pitt the Elder, though, it should be noted. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Ah, yes, so he goes on to become Prime Minister, doesn't he? Yes, so um, yes. Yes, at least he did something for the nation. From humble beginnings in a very small constituency to Prime Minister, that's, that's quite, a, quite a feat. John, how did the castle at Old Serum become ruins? Well, as Steve's really alluded to, it was with the poll tax returns of, of 1377, in which the proportion of people in Old Serum is 10 to over 3,000 outside the city. It's just unsustainable up there. And we have what are known as dilapidation surveys of the castle that, that demonstrate it was really in very poor condition in the 14th century. In the middle of the 14th century, they spent a lot of money on one part of it, which is the old courtyard house, um, uh, which is the sheriff's office. Um, and they do sort of bring that up to uh, a habitable standard. But it's obviously sort of starting to fall apart again. And there's very little money. These sheriff's officers aren't very well maintained by the Crown. They're usually responsible themselves, actually, for, their, for the maintenance of their, of their premises. And so eventually... At the beginning of the 16th century, then they decide simply to pull down what's left. And there's a grant in 1514 on the part of Henry VIII to a man called Thomas Compton, who's given the materials uh, from the castle. And one aspect of that, you know, which, which he can, we can use as he sees fit, whatever profit he can make from what's left in the castle uh, is his. And it's then moved down, actually, and some of it turns up in houses in Stratford Subcastle and in, uh, in Salisbury itself. There was a, a rather interesting house that was pulled down in the early 1970s, um, which was obviously improved in the 16th century when chimney stacks were put into the, uh, into the house. Um, and uh, all of the material in these chimney stacks has actually come from the courtyard house in, uh, in Old Serum, uh, as was done in the early 16th century. And that's pretty much the end of it as an occupied site, although it's passed over because ultimately it is within the bishop's sort of purview. It's within the bishop's estate, the, the, uh, the castle. So the crown really sort of make it over uh, to the church um, and they lease it out then uh, as a farm. Uh, and so it's, it's, it declines really into rough sheep pasture. And that, that's the sort of situation it was in really from all the way through the sort of 17th, 18th and 19th centuries. And there are images, they get lots of topographical views, in fact, in the 19th century of, of old, uh, old Serum as a sort of slightly just overgrown with gorse and bracken and rough pasture. Interesting. So almost the way that it would have started with Iron Age settlers taking their livestock into the ring, uh, it sort of ends up that way after the progression of the centuries. How many centuries then did it take for the site to be, well, shall we say, appreciated by historians, John? Well, there's some interest because it is a rotten borough in the 18th century, but it's really the first half of the 19th century that it sort of comes back into view. And on the one hand, its picturesque qualities are recognised. And John Constable 
had a friendship with the Bishop of Salisbury, spent quite some time in Salisbury. And in 1834, he produced a, a large canvas of Old Serum, which he exhibited at the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy. And Joseph, uh, J.M.W. Turner got wind of this, and he also produced a few of Old Serum in, in 1834. So you get a sort of London outing, effectively, for Old Serum at that point. It also coincided with a very dry summer in 1834, when scorch marks revealed something of the plan of the cathedral site, and a local antiquarian called Henry Hatcher produced the first plan, outline plan of the uh, of the cathedral site. Remarkably good, actually, a plan very close to what eventually came out of the excavations of the early 20th century. Those excavations are the basis for much, if not most, of what we know about the sort of material culture, about the uses of the site at Old Serum. And they were unfortunately timed in retrospect because the latter stages of those excavations coincided with the early stages of the First World War. And it was felt an inappropriate call on national resources to continue the excavation. So eventually they were, they were abandoned after a very short season in late summer of 1915. And they've never really been picked up on the sort of scale that the site would benefit from. Since then, there was a, a series of excavations, actually, of the ramparts done in the late 1950s. And then there have been remote sensing excavations, particularly led by the University of Southampton in the last decade. So still plenty to potentially discover by future historians. Absolutely, yes. I mean, there are some very, very interesting areas that remain untouched, of which the most tantalising, I would say, is the cloister, because that cloister we know was abandoned by 1226, and it's never actually been dug out. In fact, a lot of spoil was piled up within the cloister. So with sort of modern laboratory-based techniques, we should actually be able to uncover the planting, I would say, of a, a very important medieval cloister in the sort of state it had reached by the early 13th century. Mm. So there may be some digs for future visitors to see when they come along with their tickets. But for current visitors, what will they see these days, Stephen? What they see is a landscape site, uh, really, Charles. You see the, um, the dramatic banks and ditches, the great open space of greensward, the spectacular views from um, from the banks. But then when you go across the bridge into the inner bailey, uh, there are quite substantial remains of the of the castle keep and the courtyard house. Um, the, the wall cores were built of flint rubble and chalk, um, and that's mostly what remains today, because when Thomas Compton was demolishing the castle, uh, he was really looking for, he was really quarrying the fine ashlar facing masonry away from it. And so what was left was a great field of rubble obscuring the walls, which do stand to some height. So you can get a sense, a clear sense of the castle buildings, even though the, the fine-facing masonry is almost all gone. And from the inner bailey, you get something of a view over the site of the cathedral. Now, that, of course, had been demolished much more systematically, as John's told us, in the 1220s. And so all that's left is the foundations, which are marked out in the ground. But there's one area where there was probably a treasury and a vestry at the north end of the North Transit, and there was a, a sort of a sunk, a partly subterranean room, 
which was vaulted. And so you can see that and get a sense of that as an architectural space. But otherwise, it's sort of open green and windswept and much loved by joggers and dog walkers. But it is one of the most evocative historical spaces in England, a great community uh, sustained there in different guises over many, many centuries that died, that disappeared. It's one of England's great deserted sites. And can we get a great view of the Salisbury Cathedral spire, that famous spire from Old Sarum as well, linking the two sites' histories? There most certainly is, Charles, yes. It's a, that is one of the great landmarks of England. We'll move from one landmark to another. You do get these fantastic views over Salisbury uh, and to its great spire, but you also see into a deeper past from Old uh, Sarum, because if you know where to look, then you can actually see Clearbury Ring, you can see Figsbury Ring, you can see Clarendon, you can see these great prehistoric centres actually around the on the high ground above the the main valley valley system so there's history all the way around and everywhere you look basically just lots of different layers that you can pick out and evaluate if if you know what you're looking for i suppose and hopefully everyone will uh, now that they've listened to this podcast Thank you both for your time and for explaining the whole story of Old Serum and uh, Salisbury and Wilton as well. And um, look forward to doing another episode, um, perhaps on another Wiltshire topic in the future. Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you very much, Charles. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll try to unravel the mystery of the Roman dodecahedron, three of which have been found along Hadrian's Wall. Perhaps it was made as a kind of a flat net and then folded up while still warm. Was it cast in one with the knobs added after? I'm really hopeful the next few years we might get a few more answers. Thanks for listening. See you next time.